Welcome to How Books Are Made, a podcast about the art and science of making books. I'm Arthur Atwell. For many of us, the role of the publisher is almost mythical. That distant, unknowable keeper of dreams. To writers of fiction and general interest books, this mythical publisher lies behind a curtain of agents and assistants, occasionally dispensing little notes of rejection or encouragement, whose effect on our self-worth is wholly out of proportion to reality. Somehow, as a society, we have invested publishers, the people who decide what to publish, with enormous cultural cachet. Still, they are just people. And I'll be very, very happy if my conversations with some of them here can make that clear. Because I think everyone would be better off if our relationship with publishers were more human. If we knew a little more about them and the kinds of decisions and trade-offs they make. At the very least, perhaps that'll help us write better submission letters for them to read. I'll get to talk with many publisher humans in the coming months about what it's like to make books possible and to choose which books to make. Today, to start, I'm talking to Jeremy Borain, the publishing director at Jonathan Ball Publishers. Jonathan Ball, the company, is one of South Africa's biggest publishers of general interest books, what publishing folk call trade books. And having recently bought Icon Books in the UK, Jonathan Ball is now properly an international publishing company. Jeremy runs a team of half a dozen publishers and editors that find and craft much of South Africa's best non-fiction. I wanted to know more about what it's like to be a publisher and how he balances new local publishing with selling imported books, how they think about audiobooks, and what acquiring icon books might mean for his company and their authors. We also got to talk about the steady but glacial pace of change in the unbearable whiteness of publishing and the impossible dilemmas of staying afloat while publishing new voices. And I finally get to ask Jeremy about the recent fallout over their unauthorized biography of Sia Colisi. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Arthur. I have a little confession to make. You have the job that I tried to get, not your specific job, but I mean a job like yours in the mid-2000s, I left Schoolbook Publishing to specifically try to get into trade, general interest publishing. And the industry, as you know, does not have high turnover in the publisher realm. And it was just at the time when you were publisher at Penguin, and it was literally my dream job at the time. And because I couldn't get it, I had to start my own company. And here I am 15 years later running an agency and still occasionally wonder what would have happened if I'd pulled it off. So that's my little confession. I'm going to leave it up to you to explain to me why it would have been a terrible idea that it's the worst job in the world. But I, I suspect you won't be able to do that. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to have to disappoint you. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I also, I did a, an escape from um, educational publishing. Uh, I did my time there, but with always an eye to move into trade publishing. I'd worked in trade publishing in New York uh, years before that and got a real taste for it. So, and I think I got lucky because there are not a, a lot of positions in the industry for a commissioning editor or a publisher. It took me a while to kind of get to the position. 
you know, I think I sort of frittered away my 20s and maybe even my early 30s doing things that I, you know, kind of were interesting, but not really what I wanted to do. And in fact, it was my dream when I left school to work in publishing. I think what I love about it is that um, is that it's something new every day, a new author, a new contract, a new book, a new audience, a new reader, a new jacket design. Uh, so it's sort of endlessly interesting. So the other thing that Jonathan Ball does is distribute international books locally. How do you manage the relationship between those agency sales and the local publishing? There must be quite different headspaces. So Jonathan Ball has the contract to distribute a number of British and American publishers here. So HarperCollins and Hachette and Simon and & Schuster and Faber and & Faber, a whole lot. And this is something that we've built up over, well, 40 years, in fact, since Jonathan Ball started the company. And so we take their copies and we put them in our warehouse and we sell them to the bookshops and we market them. And if there are authors coming out here, we tour them and organize launches or events or whatever it is. I just kind of get on and run our publishing. Of course, I liaise at the London Book Fair or through email or what have you with publishers at these various companies. So we're always looking for opportunities to collaborate you know, by way of example, Martin Meredith is a um, a British journalist and academic, and he's written a lot on Africa over the years. So his UK publisher is Simon & Schuster. And whenever he brings out a new book that we feel is a good fit with Jonathan Ball, then we'll do it as a co-edition. So you could just print it in the UK as a Simon & Schuster book and bring it in here, but instead, it'll become a Jonathan Ball branded book. And we may have input on the on the editorial, uh, on the jacket design. Um, so some may recall uh, Martin's book, uh, State of Africa, published some 15 years ago or more. But we've, I think we've sold about 40 or 45,000 copies just in South Africa. But there are, there are other benefits um, that are less tangible. You know, so we have an annual sales conference and the export sales managers come out to South Africa to present, you know, their forthcoming titles to our sort of collected masses of Jonathan Ball, the sales teams and the marketing teams and publicity and what have you. So we might get a heads up on, on jacket design, on new genres that are growing, technical uh, developments, you know, what's happening with audible.com, what's happening with amazon.com, what are the kind of rates that are being paid for, for sales through new channels, you know, and these are relationships that are built up over years and years. So to to have access to that is is very useful. I mean, it's all it all works pretty well. And and I should just add that, you know, the local publishing division is a smaller part of the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of revenues. So, you know, a major part of the business is the import market. Similar to a Penguin Random House or Pan Mac is that the, the, the local publishing is not the bigger part of it, but the local publishing is more profitable. So in that sense, that's another sort of complementary factor between the, the large imports, which gives us the infrastructure to do our small local publishing. And in return, we give sort of higher profits to, to the company. That's fascinating because I'd always worried that the local publishing, to some extent, had to be cross-subsidized. Recently, Jonathan Ball Publishers bought Icon Books in the UK, and this is the first time I've heard of a South African publisher buying a a UK publisher. Have I got that right? And if so, that just sounds exciting. What possibilities does it open up? 
It, ha- it all happened at a quite a unusual time, which sort of gave us pause for thought. I mean, this is something we had been sort of looking at doing for some time. And the sale actually went through on the week that we went into under lockdown. So it was a kind of a moment of like, well, what have we done? Mm. Because this was something that we've thought about on and off for years. In fact, before I was even at, at Jonathan Ball, and I've been here, I think it's 14 going on 15 years. Strategically, you know, there's the South African market, even if it were to grow, is only going to grow so much. And in fact, what we've seen is shrinkage. Uh, and if you think about it, you know, one of the big dips came with the launch of ebooks. You know, so we were bringing in, as were any import publishing company, um, they were only print. And then suddenly we lost all those ebooks that were being imported. Of course, we realized revenues from our own ebooks, but none of the, you know, Hachette, Harper, Collins, Bloomsbury, any ebook goes through direct, it's, it's a direct sale. So that, you know, there was quite a rupture to the South African market, both publishers and, um, and, and the bookshops. So this was a, a plan to sort of like establish a base elsewhere in a market that may offer us new opportunities. And for now, Icon Books is pretty much that when they must get on and do what they do. It's not that we're telling them what to publish or how to run their business. I mean, they've been, they've been around for a while and that's, and that's what they're doing. I think the goal, you know, I mean, it, there's no point in just like letting things stand still. You know, I think the, the, the goal is to grow Icon Books over time. Um, if you're stuck in a market like South Africa and you're publishing books for South African readers, well, maybe one needs to put one's head up and say, well, could one publish for, for a more global market? Is there a way that we can curate content or um, commission authors and publish books for, you know, an international market? So Icon Books, you know, they don't just sell their books in the UK. I mean, because they're based in the UK with, you know, access to international markets, I mean, they sell a lot of their books to the US and Australia and, you know, basically the English language world plus Europe. So perhaps it'll be a conduit to trying to earn foreign income. Mm. Um, and uh, I think it's a, an excellent survival strategy, to be honest. I think a further, I mean, I don't want to make any commitments here, but I think it's also could be a boon for our authors yeah. in that we will be able to more efficiently take their books onto an international stage. Of course, a lot of the books we publish are very much geared for the South African reader, uh, and that's shown through our ebook sales and our Audible sales and our export sales over years. I mean, you know, it's it, our books are South African, so it's not like suddenly they're going to start selling tens of thousands of copies to Americans and Australians. They, I mean, we won't, but something might happen. It's kind of a maximizing opportunity, I guess. It gives me such pleasure to even discuss such a thing because. I remember 20-something years ago being a bookseller at Exclusive Books and feeling a bit sad that the South African publishing shelf had books and covers on it that just weren't up to the production standards of the books we were seeing from the US. The covers were never quite as slick. The paper stock was, was poor. A lot of South African books were still published on 80-gram bond and... Uh, <laughs> They just felt wrong in the hand. And then something seemed to happen in the early 2000s where all of a sudden 
our book started looking like anything you'd get out of London or New York. What was that? This was, the, of course, the time when you hit Penguin, so maybe you did it. But anyway, what, what do you think happened? <laughs> exactly. In 2002, I left educational publishing and joined trade publishing. And <laughs> No, I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not that familiar with trade publishing before then in, in South Africa, but I suppose it could be a, you know, perhaps it was a continuum following the end of isolation. And it could be there could be a number of reasons, sort of a number of companies or individuals that started to influence things and to look more closely at well, what paper do you use, and what cover designs are there, and what kinds of finishes are there, and why don't we adopt the format that the UK uses, or you know whatever that might be. I mean, it's a it's a good thing, isn't it, that we you know that we that we sort of moved in that direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, from a production standards point of view, you want that, but Sometimes it's also a case of kind of getting the right balance of sort of international excellence, but also sort of local quirkiness or a, a local twist. Yeah, I remember when I met my wife, Michelle, in 2005, she had just started as a publisher at Ocean, which mm. was what is now PRH, really. And because she didn't come from book publishing, she came from magazine publishing, she couldn't quite believe that books were being printed on 80 gram bond paper and set off to find a printer who would import her some creamy, bulky paper. And little moments like that, individuals mm. getting in to the industry and making small decisions uh, really put us among the best in the world. And cover design these days, uh, I was just looking through the Jonathan Ball Publishers website for this podcast, just marveling at just how good that stuff is now. Yeah. I've really got some exceptional designers. There are some brilliant designers in South Africa. They really are. Do you feel that there have been shifts in what's being published over the last 10 years? I mean, for the longest time, it was clear that publishers were essentially publishing to a market the size and color of New Zealand, you know, two million white people. Mm. And Mm. uh, I'm sure that still, unfortunately, has to be the case to some extent. But are we beginning to shift out of that? Is the market changing? And is, is the author base getting the kind of representativity that we all want it to be? Yeah, it has. There has definitely been been a shift, and I mean, you you can look at the Nielsen figures, you know, over time, and look at the demographics, and there certainly are more black authors not only being published but also in the bestseller lists. You know, they are they are best selling black author local authors, and I mean, we're not just talking about the last sort of six months or year with the, with a sort of world explosion around identity and Black Lives Matter. I mean, this there's publishing that precedes this. There's a long way to go because there is still the rump of this kind of middle class white market that exists and it's sort of predictable and uh, you know safe and it's an easy choice and let's let's face it i think you said at the beginning of this talk there's not a lot of sort of staff turnover in south african publishing and that remains the case so i mean most of the decision the gatekeepers are still white Mm-hmm. Um, and that that needs to change. That does that does need to change because it's uh, it gatekeepers will be gatekeepers. But I think you know there are positive signs of sort of authors sort of bursting onto the scene, um, shaking things up, publishers trying different imprints. Yes, you know there will always be problems and there will always be sort of further to go. But certainly, I mean, it's quite extraordinary, you know, if you think that, so what's it been, 25 years now, and it's only kind of now in the last few years, it's taken an awfully long time. And, you know, I mean, 
probably one could sort of look at oneself and sort of say, well, you know, you were part of the impediment, you know. But I suppose as a publisher, you know, the thing is, is that one mustn't be fooled into thinking that you're some kind of national treasure. You know, at the end of the day, if you're not making money, you either get closed down or you lose your job. You know, they, they are commercial enterprises. Uh, yes, they do sort of control cultural output, but, it, you know, you have to keep turning out. You can't pay the salaries. Yeah, yeah. So, um, that's also, uh, unfortunately, impacts on things. But you can't have really have a funded model of publishing either. That doesn't work terribly well. That dilemma of having to choose between another book you know will sell well to your predictable market versus an experimental book, a book that is the new kind of book we might want to see much more of, but you can't be sure about the sales mm. because you, there really isn't enough track record to go on. How do those dilemmas play out in the decision-making conversations that you have had with your colleagues? So you're doing, however many books you're doing in a year, you have to have some bestsellers. You, don't, you just simply don't make targets. You don't make your budget if you don't have a couple of bestsellers. And, you know, you can see it year in and year out. If you have a poor year, it's like, oh, there were no bestsellers. They are the books that sort of bring in the bacon and, in a sense, subsidize a lot of your other publishing. So if one maintains that kind of strategy, that does give you, and you continue to get the bestsellers, of course. I mean, that, that's a big if. Um, then that does give you leeway to actually um, um, experiment more and take risks on 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 on, on other titles, um, and it may be that you change in that experimentation what you experiment with. You know, you could move into a different market or try and appeal to a new audience, but but it remains the same strategy which is to sort of like peg your list down with some big sellers and then populate it with other books that may surprise you, some won't. The big danger is, and you know, we are kind of in the midst of, uh, you know, this sort of economic disaster with the, the lockdown. And uh, so it's it's difficult to know, you know, will the, how will the market recover? How will it look going forward? And I'm not sure if anyone really knows. So will we still be able to find the best sellers in a market that is uh, curtailed. People simply have less money, and they just can't buy books. So, um, so we shall we shall see. Yeah, we shall see. Mm. And then another area which I'm just personally fascinated in is audiobooks. I know that South African publishers have only been really doing audiobooks regularly for the last year or two, so it's early days. It just does seem to me that South Africa is kind of a perfect place for audiobooks. We've got so many people commuting so many people who aren't confident readers and increasingly were able to get over Wi-Fi constraints or you know data constraints with just the downloading of files. I like to believe we're on the cusp of seeing a boom in audiobook sales for publishers. Am I being too optimistic? What are the challenges there and what is the level of interest, do you think, from publishers in really exploring audiobooks as a serious sales channel? Look, first, let me say that I absolutely love audiobooks and, uh, you know, I'm quite a convert to them. And one thing about lockdown is that, you know, I used to listen to them on my commute. Uh, and uh, although I'm delighted not to be spending that much time in the traffic, I do miss the occasional audiobook. I think it's a fantastic area. We, Jonathan Ball, we signed a contract with audible.com. I think it was about two years ago. So we've sort of come on stream for the last year now. And uh, the sales, 
pretty much track our print sales, you know, not to the same numbers, but, you know, if a book is selling well in print, well, then the audio, audible book seems to also, also do well. I mean, one of the barriers is the cost. It can be a hundred thousand rand, you know, quite easily that you could spend on a, on a, on a good voice and recording and, and what have you. And, uh, you know, currently if you sell a couple of hundred, then you're happy. So you are not, you know, it's quite hard to cover your costs. It really is, which is why we went in with Audible. So they, I mean, essentially we're licensing our, our Audible rights to them. Uh, so they pick up all those costs. I mean, the great thing was, is that I, I sort of thought that they would have studios in the UK and the US, and we would have very little input on who got to re read the books. Um, but in fact, they came out here, cased the joint, and they use local studios quite a lot and local voices. So it has given work to that industry, but more importantly, the the voices that they use are realistic. You know, so so for um, Kwesi by Redi Klabi, you know, they, they've used an African woman's voice and not, you know, Stephen Fry, uh, who I'm sure would do a good job, but, you know, would be wholly inappropriate. So that's been good. I mean, the not the downside. Well, the downside is that they're so dominant. It's the obvious choice to make. And I think they've come in here and they have signed up a few other publishers. And, uh, you know, the, the thing about licensing your content as opposed to doing it yourself is that the revenues are, you know, you get paid a royalty, which you share with the author. I mean, you sell your, your, um, your 10,000. I mean, you're not going to make much money. The print edition is still where we make our money. I mean, that may all change. I mean, when I joined Jonathan Ball, it was like, right, you do the print book and that's it. You know, then the ebook came along, and then there's you know we have uh, we have an international distribution through Ingram's the the Lightning Source program, um, which is a you know print on demand program. Uh, now we have the Icon option and you know Icon Books option. We have the Audible option. So there are these sort of multiple editions, which is excellent. But the primacy remains local print for now. For now. So one thing that I'm curious to talk about if it's something you're comfortable talking about. Last year, you published the Sia biography, Sia Colisi biography. It's written by a friend of mine. So I got to hear Jeremy Daniels' story as he was working on it. He was very excited. And then it was published. And then there was a bit of a negative reaction. And I'm being understated here. It was a fairly significant negative reaction to Sia Colisi's story being told uh, without his involvement. And there was just so much more to the story that I knew, but it's an interesting uh, question for publishers about unauthorized biographies, about how we choose to tell stories and about how we run businesses. How do you think about the publishing decisions and how we can be sensitive publishers in South Africa and tell people stories? Um, Maybe you could tell a bit more about the story. If it's a story that you feel can be told in this short space of a podcast, it might deserve much more time than we can give it. I mean, I'm happy to happy to talk about it. Um, so, yes, I mean, there's a long tradition of the unauthorized biography. And I think the, you know, our, our starting point is really, so if you have a person of national, international prominence, what would it be like if you only had one biography on that person and it was the authorized, sanitized version? Uh, what would the world be like without unauthorized biographies or, or multiple biographies? Um, you know, I think the world would be a poorer place. 
and there's a space for the authorized, and I think that there's equally a space for the unauthorized. There are many reasons why something, why why this one, why we attracted the opprobrium of you know Sia Khaleesi and and his wife. And I mean, I had been trying to land his official biography for some years before I commissioned the unauthorized, and in fact made a an offer the size of which I've never made before through his agent. And he turned it down. He chose to turn it down, which is, you know, his right to do. But what I try to say is that if you don't publish around the time of the World Cup, it's not going to sell as well. It will sell at its best during or after the World Cup, depending on how well you do. So so we published in August, I think it was, and, you know, it trickled out of the stores. I mean, there wasn't really, seriously, not very little interest. But, of course, as we got closer to the final, it sold more and more and more, and suddenly people woke up, and suddenly Sia was a massive, massive hero. I mean, he was the he was the Springbok captain, so there was going to be some interest. But if we had been knocked out in the quarterfinals, I mean, no one would have even breathed a word about this because it would have been over, you know. We would have been waiting till, till the next World Cup. So we were a kind of a victim of success, as it were, because, I mean, we took all the risk. We, you know, we made the made the investment. We went out and found the author to write this, and we gave, you know, Sia Khaleesi an opportunity to to participate. So I, I really feel quite strongly that, you know, we had every right to do this. It isn't commonly known that we approached them, made, a, frankly, a massive offer for the authorized biography, um, and, um, you know, the agent said, turned it down. The agent then, so when we said we're doing an unauthorized biography, she, she said, okay, you know, that's fine. There was no kind of pushback then. It was just kind of like, all right, well, you know, you do it. In fact, she collaborated a little bit in, in, in the beginning. So we didn't have any direct dealings with Sia and his, his camp other than through the agent. It was done in good faith. And we have done unauthorized biographies before, and we've got some in the pipeline now. You know, we, and we won't we won't treat them any differently. As to why someone who is a public figure, I mean, if you sort of say, okay, let's compare an unauthorized biography to an extensive feature in U Magazine, there's no real difference other than that the U Magazine article runs to six pages and maybe fifteen hundred words with lots of pictures. U Magazine's making a tremendous amount of money from it. Um, but I mean, the, the subject is not necessarily making you know any money. So what is what is what is the difference? Or newspapers endlessly putting something on the front page of their newspaper to sell more copies, because there's public interest mm -hmm. in the subject. I mean, it's a public interest debate. I mean, I, I I tell you, who I do feel sorry for, and that's for for Jeremy Daniel because he put his heart into it, and I think he actually wrote a really really good book, you know, and he was. A, an enormous fan of Sia, and he went out of his way to write a really, really lovely story about him. And, uh, you know, so for the sort of the insults that he's faced, uh, I just think it's just really inappropriate and unfair. So, yeah, I mean, that's my that's my say on the matter. Uh, hopefully it's kind of over now, but um, um, you never know. Yeah, uh, thank you. <laughs> so... I know that you shouldn't have your favorite children, but of the books you published recently, just kind of as we wrap up, what do you think are things, books that you are particularly pleased to have published in the last uh, year or two? 
I suppose every book offers it offers something, you know, in what we publish, and uh, the sort of the joy of the publisher w- might be in the in the figures, in the text, in the in the you know in the the way the author promotes the book. But I think a book that I mean I I waited a long time for uh, is the Pink Line by Mark Fisser, which we released two months ago. And you know, he, I mean, Mark took ten years to write the Tabon Beki biography. Um, and it was it was a tour de force, and now the the pink line took him five or six years. And for those who have aren't familiar with what it's about, I mean, the pink line is a term that he's come up, which is to explore where gay people around the world have either won or lost rights, political rights, uh, human rights. And um, so he spent time, in depth time, in in a number of countries in the world. Mexico, Kenya, Russia, Israel, the United States, and really sort of like through these stories of these individuals um, has sort of explored where they've lost and where and where they've won. And it's a, I think it's quite a groundbreaking book. I know that Mark Fisser recently had a fantastic interview on the Book Lounge podcast, so I'll I'll put that link in the show notes so that people can listen to Mark talk about it himself. I think it's, I mean, just to mention one other, and this goes back a year now, I mean, it's always a a great day to publish a new Johnny Steinberg book. So, you know, we did that last year, one day in Bethlehem. um, And I do regard him as one of South Africa's greatest sort of, you know, writers. And he's been consistently delivering these extraordinary stories for about 18 years now, I think. So um, that was, that, that was another one. Fantastic. And last question, as we head into the end of the year, what are your highlights? What's the book or books that we should look out for? Look, I mean, this, uh, this, this financial year is about survival under COVID. So any book that's out there um, and selling it all, I'm immensely grateful for. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. And I think any publisher would back me up on that. It's really, really, really tough. So you know we have got a few, we've got, we've got a few books out there. I'll just mention two. Um, you know, one is uh, Miracle Men by Lloyd Bernard, and it's another foray into rugby, and it's basically how how we won the World Cup, and it's just this fabulous sort of inside story of how Rassi and the boys sort of won the World Cup. So it's a great one for the fans, and you know, if let's face it, when we did bring the cup back there was great joy and celebration so it's just it's just a, it's just a great story and then i have this other book that um uh, you know it's a totally unknown author um her name is joan lawrence and she's a medical doctor in her 60s she lives in neisner and she's written a memoir called a wilder life and i just love it because she has lived life the way I think a lot of us don't which is you know we're in our offices and we're behind pcs so Really briefly, she was a young GP, uh, not a GP, a young medical doctor, uh, married, two kids, working somewhere near the near a game park, and her husband died young. So she was left with two young daughters, and uh, uh, you know, and most people would kind of think, well, I need to kind of find a safe job and raise my daughters, and then sort of see what happens in life. Well, Joan was having none of that, and she has worked on all seven continents but mostly in the remotest place she could find uh, on ships in the middle of, you know, the Atlantic or on islands or 
anyway, it's just this wonderful journey where she kind of, as a medical doctor, she's used this as a way to just keep exploring the world. And I think as we're kind of stuck in our houses under lockdown and can't travel outside our borders, it's just a great escape. Uh, it's kind of like, yes, I, I could have lived my life like that. But you know, she's, she's an amazing, amazing woman. So, yeah, so those are, those are two. Fantastic. Thanks. Well, look forward to those. Jeremy, thank you so much. I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed that conversation and I uh, really appreciate your joining us. Arthur, thanks very much. I also enjoyed it and I hope I haven't sort of um, given too much away, um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but a lovely interview. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Please make sure you subscribe and it would be such a help if you'd tell a friend about the show. Also, don't forget to send us your own bookmaking topics and conundrums at howbooksaremade.com, where I'll also post links to things we talked about today. How Books Are Made is supported by Electric Bookworks, where my team and I make books all day, every day, in mostly sunny Cape Town, South Africa. 